Well, I, I have to say it's been such a joy. Um, it's a miracle story when you look back at, at First Baptist Church, Capital City Church, what God has done here. And we are so grateful to watch um, how God has actually brought a team together and then brought all of us together as a church family to do God's work and God's will. I have to warn you a little bit today. I got so excited in preparing for today's sermon that I wound up with more notes than I've ever had for a sermon. So here's what I'm realizing. I'm going to have to talk fast, but what I need is for you to listen fast. Can you all help me with that? So we're, we're in this powerful passage today, and I, I've so appreciated the opportunity to explore God's Word in this particular context. But I want to give just a little bit of background. The deadliest year in human history was the year 1943. It competes with the deadliest year, 1942, or the other deadly year, 1942. The largest confrontation in World War II uh, reached its highest point as the Russian high command ordered the, uh, the, the Soviet troops to destroy the German 6th Army unit by unit in Stalingrad. That siege, by the way, is always listed uh, among the top three deadliest battles in human history. And then after taking Stalingrad, the Battle of Kursk, the largest armored battle in history, and possibly, by some accounts, the largest air battle in history, led to the death of 257,000 people in that one battle. At the same time, in the Warsaw Ghettos of Poland, thousands of Jewish civilians were fighting for their lives in bloody street battles. They were resisting deportation to Treblinka. And by June of that year, 1.3 million Jews have already had already been deported and killed. It was the height of the Japanese invasion of Asia, where uh, we don't know when all of these people die, but we do know by the end of the war that 10 million people would eventually die in that one theater. The Americans and British were fully engaged in the South Pacific, but also they had invaded North Africa at the very tail end of 1942 and into 1943 and eventually jumped over into Sicily as well. And also, in another little-known fact of that war, the, the region of Bengal in British India, now known as Bangladesh, three million people died of starvation and famine that year. And in that year, 1943, with conflicts spanning the globe, a British professor from Oxford's Magdalen College delivered a series of lectures at the University of Durham in England. His name was Clive Stapleton Lewis, and knowing full well himself the nature of war, Lewis had been in the trenches in World War I. Matter of fact, he had lost his very dearest friend there, and because of a pact with that friend, Lewis lived the remainder of his life with that friend's mother, taking care of her until she moved on as well. Lewis, knowing the nature of war, began to warn the world of a very different and lethal threat emerging in his day. In a series of lectures that were presented there in Durham, which were eventually developed into an extraordinary book entitled, and I would recommend it for every one of you, is entitled The Abolition of Man. In that book, the very first line of that book, Lewis writes this. Now, mind you, with war raging, he writes this. I doubt whether we are sufficiently attentive to the importance of elementary textbooks. What he's explaining by careful dissection 
is as he's going through a book, which at the time, because he didn't want to name the book, he just called it the Green Book, we now know it to be the control of language, and you might recognize these words, a critical approach to reading and writing. What bothered Lewis in that book was that the authors expressed disgust at the idea of a story from Samuel Taylor Coleridge that declared a waterfall to be sublime or pretty. And I know it sounds mild, but you got to hang in with Mr. Lewis as he explains why he was so horrified by that idea. The reason for the teacher's disgust was they claimed that Coleridge could only speak of how he felt about a waterfall rather than being able to state as a truth that a waterfall could actually be pretty. Lewis was troubled by the moral truth claim implied by the authors. These English teachers were saying that things could not be objectively true, that all value statements only explain the emotional state of the speaker, and therefore they are unimportant. Lewis, writing nearly 80 years ago, was uncanny in his prediction that the subjection of truth to feelings would lead to a future where a small cabal of academic professionals could manipulate humanity along religious grounds by undermining the basis of truth. And that eventually they would take over the role of determining which truth was an acceptable truth. Lewis points out the absurdity of relativism, which is what that's called, and that a deeply educated thinker would never allow relativism to become a part of their moral makeup. So the only way such an idea, as he wrote, could sway the minds of of people is by planting the seeds of that absurdity in the minds of the young when they don't even realize that they're being indoctrinated, i.e. the Green Book. He states it this way in The Abolition of Man. The very power of the authors depends on the fact that they are dealing with a boy. A boy who thinks he's doing his English prep work, who has no notion that ethics, theology, and politics are all at stake, is not a theory they put in his mind, but rather an assumption, which 10 years from now, is origin forgotten, is presence unconscious, would condition him to take one side in a controversy which he has never recognized as a controversy in the first place. What he is saying is that the theological ideas of relativism were being introduced in such a way that the next generation would view truth as moldable, as malleable, rather than fixed by an eternal God. And his foresight was uncanny because he rightly understood that what was at stake were issues of ethics and theology. He points out that the issues of education and These kind of issues, public policy, were invading the church, whether the church was ready for it or not. And what we can say today, could you not agree with me that these statements have become uncannily familiar in our culture? Would you not agree with me that what he has said has come to pass? But wouldn't you agree that we have a God who is bigger than our cultural moment? Amen? And the issues before us today are issues indeed of religion. 
Today, there is a religion, though, that has come that's unlike any before it. It's overtly religious in its core doctrine of radical autonomy on the one hand, and yet demands radical conformity to its demands of radical autonomy on the other. It declares to the world that it is anti-religious and yet operates from a system of virtue signaling and virtue shaming. It has its seminary set up on university campuses across the country where people learn from programs like gender studies and in philosophy departments that there is no objective truth, that the only truth is the truth as Oprah declares it, you just live your truth, baby. And such deceit is not new to our day. In the Apostle Paul's day, there was, were some who had come to Corinth who distorted and outright nullified the truth of the gospel. And he addresses this in our text this morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And while the distortion wasn't necessarily exactly the same relativism as we're seeing today, what is astonishing is that we can see that the gods of the age of that day had blinded people to the truth in the same way the gods of our age had blinded people to, truth, to the truth. And so the question for us is, what is the church supposed to do about it? And with that, I want to jump into our text. I want you to turn back to chapter 2. We're going to look at verse 14. The context of the scripture tells us here in chapter 2, in verse 14, it's a very fascinating verse here. Look at verse 17, I'm sorry. For we are not, as so many, peddling the word of God. But as of sincerity, but as from God, we speak in the sight of truth. Now, he had gone through, going starting at for, verse 14, he had gone through and talked about how God had given them the privilege of going throughout the Roman Empire, specifically through Asia Minor and into Greece. And everywhere he had gone in his ministry, he had had the opportunity to spread the fragrance of God's knowledge in many places. I love that phrasing, by the way, because if you've ever been in a room with a nice candle, my wife loves to burn candles in our home. It's a wonderful smell that permeates the room. In the Old Testament context, it's a, it notes the, the presence of God. It's a beautiful idea, just the smell of the incense that must have filled the temple in the Old Testament. The ministry God had given Paul had spread the fragrance of God far beyond the temple, but into every village and town that he had visited. And in the midst of this recounting of victories, Paul sounds a note of concern to the church at Corinth, where he says, we are not at, now note this, as so many peddling the word of God. Note the concern here. First of all, that concern is that there are people who are peddling the word of God. That word is fascinating, peddling. Calipchuontes. It means that they were retailing or selling the word of God. One commentator I was reading explains it like this. That this word in Greek means that the teachers were diluting, diluting the word of God like an ancient huckster who is a wine merchant would when he would dilute his product before selling it. In essence, they were not only diluting and corrupting the word of God, they were using it for personal gain. And secondly, he notes in this phrase that so many were doing this. I want to stop for a second and point out that the gospel of Christ, the truth of God's word, 
has faced many people trying to pollute it from the very beginning. Here we are in approximately 56, 57 AD, some 33, 34 years after the death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of our Messiah. And some people claiming to be ministers of the gospel have already begun to use the gospel to further themselves and their agenda. But obviously that whets our appetite to ask, what were they selling? What were they peddling there in Corinth? What was the selling of the word of God? What is the apostle addressing? And we find in chapter 11, you don't need to turn there now, that Paul was speaking specifically against someone who had apparently come and had begun to teach a different gospel than the gospel of Jesus Christ. According to 11.22, he must have been boasting of the purity of his Hebrew descent as though that gave him some sort of special insight into a different gospel. According to chapter 3 and verse 1, this man, whoever it was, had actually brought letters of commendation. You see that in chapter 3 and verse 1. And it may have been letters of commendation from members at the church in Jerusalem. Apparently, what was happening is these false teachers had come to the church in Corinth with letters of recommendation from who knows where, and they were saying that the gospel, as preached by the apostle Paul, was somehow wrong because he didn't know the secret handshake. He didn't have all the special credentials they had. Basically, what they were saying was, look at my credentials. I have a PhD from an Ivy League school, and I've commented on 15 shows about, by the way, on the Fake History Channel, about how the early Christians were really ancient aliens. That may not have been actually what was happening, but what they're saying is, I've got all these credentials, and the Apostle Paul doesn't. So therefore, listen to me. In chapter 3, he points out how these false teachers had tried to bind the Corinthians in the false philosophies of man. Some had come not only attacking his apostleship, but even the very basis of the gospel. In verses 1 through 5, Paul addresses God's call on his life and then points out the ministry God had given him. It was the new covenant. Uh, So when we look at this new covenant, we have to ask, what is the new covenant? Well, this is a new covenant in contrast to the old covenant. We find this throughout the scripture, Galatians 4, 1 Corinthians 11. Paul draws the contrast, and we see it in verse 3. Look at chapter 3 and verse number 3. But clearly, you are an epistle of Christ, ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh. That is the heart. What he was saying here is that the old covenant, tablets of stone, had been replaced by a new covenant, the tablets of the heart. And that brings us to our passage this morning, where Paul delivers these powerful verses that show us that he refused to allow the falsehoods of his day to stand unchallenged. So having laid out the background, and I'm working fast, let's unpack our text. You ready? Look with me at verse number one of 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 6. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. Now, what is this ministry he's talking about here? Well, 
The Bible says, if you go back to the previous chapter, now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. He's talking about that new uh, revelation of what God is doing in individual hearts and minds. It isn't by a series of things that you do is something God does in you that is the picture, the beautiful picture of this change that's happening. Paul here is speaking of the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the preaching of the whole counsel of God. And what he's saying is, with the whole counsel of God, there's no veil, no concealment of the truth. It's abundantly clear what God wants to do in your heart, in your life. By the way, I love that about the, John wrote about this in the book of 1 John. Stepping away from my notes for a second, just, just follow me down this rabbit trail, okay? I love this because in introducing the person of Jesus Christ in the book of John, it says, in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And then he goes on to say that whoever this word was, he, all things were created by him, and without him was nothing made that was made. It's a beautiful picture. If you drop down to verse 14, it says, and the word, whatever this is, this beautiful majesty from verses one through five, we find in verse 14 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory as of the only begotten of the father, full of grace, I love this, and truth. And so what we see is that the person, this word is the person of Jesus Christ. The ultimate logos is Jesus Christ. He is the root of all knowledge and wisdom. But then he goes on, and in 1 John chapter 1, as you get down through there just a little bit, he makes this statement that in him was life, and this life was the light of men. And then he goes on to say, and this was the, I love it, the true light. There are many false lights in the world, but there is one true light that has driven us to gather here at this place this morning at Capital City Church. And we follow a light that is abundantly true. And because of that, we see here in verse number one, that because God had given this, him this ministry, he refused to lose heart. Look at that. Since we have this ministry, as we have received mercy, we do not lose heart. That's a beautiful idea because the world sometimes, even though it seemed to line up against him, he found strength in God's mercy, and he refused to lose heart. Now look with me at verse 2. But we have renounced the hidden things of shame, not walking in craftiness or handling the word of God deceitfully, but by manifestation of the truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. Paul here points out the false teachers who had come into the Corinthian church were actually tricky. They were deceitful. The word handling here is the word deluo, which means literally that they not only deceived, they falsified the gospel. Their presentation was meant to be false. Their methods were the same and always are the same as every force of evil that comes along. The shameful enticements to sin, the crafty juggling of the truth, special arguments designed to veil the gospel. Then Paul writes this in verse 3, but even if the gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. Now, let's just stop for a second. If the gospel is veiled or hidden to some, what he's saying is it's not God's fault. 
Paul doesn't want it to be his fault either. And yet even as he writes these words, he's aware that there are some who simply can't seem to take in the truth. And the question is why? Well, we find the answer in verse 4. Read that with me. Whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on him. And I think we're getting to the crux of what he's saying in this passage. Paul steps into the great reason why so many can't see. You may be listening here this morning. You may be with us online. You may be wondering, what is he getting at? And you, you actually, the whole idea of Christianity, let me just ask you a question today. Is there a possibility that the God of this age may have blinded you or you can't see the truth? Many people can't see the truth because their minds are blinded and they wind up tearing their world apart because the God of this age is the one that has blinded them. The Bible says in John 8, 44, Satan is the father of lies. And we see it here in the second word of this verse that the father of lies targets the mind. The language of Satan is the language of lies, and any old lie will do. This reminds me of a statement that I had to call my mentor yesterday because I remember hearing this statement. It was an old preacher from Wisconsin, uh, Dr. Ketchum, who used to make this statement. When truth compromises with error, it's always truth that loses, for error has nothing to give up in the first place. You don't have to. It doesn't matter. The truth is pure. It's clean. But Satan will do everything he can to take just one little element out of the truth and corrupt it so that it corrupts the minds of others because his idea is to blind the hearts and minds of men. He may use the lie that the world just popped out of nowhere of its own accord so that you don't have to believe in a creator God. He may use the ideas of Freud and Jung that you can try to psychoanalyze yourself out of your heart sickness. He may use what Paul called, uh, described to Timothy as oppositions of science, falsely so-called, meaning the philosophies that come along by the way that change with every generation that hold one thing in common. They're simply there to cast doubt on the eternal truth of the Bible. Satan uses all sorts of things to blind the eyes of our neighbors to the truth of God's word. And we see it more and more today. Today we see an actual distortion of reality. I was listening to this is crazy. I'm on another rabbit trail, but let me explain it, all right? I was listening to a book on tape a couple weeks ago. I was over near Idaho where I was speaking. And there was this story in this book that blew my mind. In 1984, a paper was presented on the case of a man who was thoroughly convinced that he was born with a phantom second head. And he grew so angry at his perceived circumstance that one day he took out a revolver and tried to blow his phantom head off. Obviously, he nearly killed himself because he, like you, were born with only one head on his shoulders. He was later diagnosed with schizophrenia and he got some help for his distortion of reality. Make sense? You may have heard of bulimia, a situation where people are either, who, who are either thin or of regular normal weight essentially starve themselves because they think they are fat. And unless they get help with their distortion of reality, they can wind up doing grave harm to themselves. But let's talk about how the gods of this age continue to blind. Today, a real condition exists called gender dysphoria, 
where a very rare group of usually younger people are confused about their sexual reality. In those real cases, five out of six have it all figured out by the time they're in their middle teens and they no longer live with a distortion of reality. By the way, the word dysphoria means literally an uncomfortable confusion. And yet two weeks ago, Pastor Carl here and I in a different place had to explain to the congregation that Christian pastors across Canada were told that if a person comes to their church trying to get an understanding of what this uncomfortable dysphoria is, that their government had chosen to declare that the only thing that pastor could say was to disobey the word of God and tell that person that that discomfort is how they're supposed to feel as opposed to giving them the help they're begging for. You see, the God of this age, the sexual revolution... Demanding radical conformity to its demands of radical autonomy tries to blind the eyes of men. Just yesterday morning, I received a call that this mayor and our town council will be introducing an ordinance in February next month that brings not only sexual orientation and gender identity, but also something called gender expression into a city ordinance in the city of Cheyenne that basically it gives them more rights than any other person in the city. And the question is, what do we do? As a church, we'll look at verse 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus our Lord, and ourselves your bronze servants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. What do we do? According to Paul, we preach Christ. We shine light into the darkness. By the way, let me just nail this very quickly. There have been four responses from the church community through history. We began to notice this in the late 1800s in the United States. In the late 1800s, heresy began to creep into sections of the American church where preachers would teach that there was error in the Bible. And at that time, these same forces argued against doctrines they didn't like and instead began to argue for a new godless social order. And what happened is under the waves that began to assault the church, they began to bow under the cultural tide. They were overwhelmed by the cultural tide. For instance, In the Methodist movement, a liberal teacher by the name of Professor Borden Parker Bone in the 1870s began to teach against the doctrines of the scriptures. And a famed atheist philosopher named William James observed, see how the ancient spirit of Methodism evaporates under those wonderfully able rationalistic books of a professor like Professor Bone. In 1908, they adopted the social creed championed by another guy who later enthused in 1920 that what they were doing was ushering in the dawn of a new day. And eventually their bishop said, we are coming to see more clearly that each day the kingdom of God means not simply new individuals, but a new world, a new social order. And what happened is a once faithful church began to be overwhelmed and bowed to a cultural tide. But then the second thing happened. There were some who began to hide from the tide. They argued strongly against that heresy, but as they stood for truth, they began to run into strong headwinds. 
There was a famous trial about atheism, and there was prohibition and the Great Depression, and these men and women known as fundamentalists became known more for their militancy than for their doctrinal depth. And long ago, they, they began to move away from teaching and trying to hold up the core truth of Scripture and instead became more known for their devastating attacks on one another. So instead of bowing to the tide, they ran and hid from the tide. Another response we've seen more and more today is for people looking for a cultural Messiah to lift them up and over the tide, to find that certain preacher, that certain politician, that certain news reporter, whoever it may be, someone to lift them over the tide. But what is the church to do? Is it to run? Is it to hide? Is it to find someone else to do our job for us? What is the Bible to do? We'll look at verse 6. We can see it. It is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God shone the light of his truth into our hearts so, so that we could shine in the darkness. And this is the thing I believe. We're not to run from the hide or bow uh, from the tide or uh, 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 bow to the tide or to look for someone else to lift us up and over the tide. We're to be a lighthouse above the tides, calling toward the truth of God's word. And the lighthouse of truth is his church. This light, this truth, this hope. If you read in verse 7, read it with me now. Chapter 4 and verse 7, it says this, but we have this treasure, this truth, this treasure in earthen vessels, that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. Who's the lighthouse? It's you. It's me. We are the lighthouse of truth as we uphold sola scriptura, as we shine God's truth into the world. That is how we perform God's call in our life. We are vessels carrying truth to the world. And what this fallen world needs is what we're supposed to be giving to them. We're not to bow. We're not to hide. We're not to try to find someone to do our work for us. We are every one of us to carry the light of truth in our homes, in our churches, in our schools, in our town halls, in our neighborhoods, no matter where it is. Pop psychology may insist that you are who you are based upon your feelings rather than objective fact. As our culture begins to buckle under the question of which truth to follow and whether there is truth at all, it is into this intersection, this junction of truth and culture, that the church is to stand tall and say, yes, waterfalls can be sublime, truth is knowable, Mankind cannot be abolished in a sea of made-up feelings. That we are to be a lighthouse for the truth in our culture. We have this ministry to speak the whole counsel of God and to not lose heart. And while the God of this age has blinded many, God who commanded light to shine out of darkness and has shown it into our hearts, places into us his treasure, in the earthen vessels, his glorious gospel, and we are to carry it into the world. And my challenge for you today 
is let's do our job. Let's carry the gospel. Let's shine the light of truth into every venue God calls us to, to, to shine it. Let's shine it into our homes, into our families, into our neighbors. Let's live truth. Friends, there may be a possibility in this room that someone has been blinded by the God of this age. It could be a million things. But generally, those, all those different ways, all the ways in which they manifest themselves, it boils down to this, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and pride of life. Things that call you away from truth. Things that entice. And you may be so wrapped up in your bank account, you can't see that one day that's going to end. You may be so wrapped up in the throes of the sexual revolution that you may not see that someday that's going to end. It may be that your pursuit for a famous name is something that you've devoted your entire life to, and you don't want anything to do with anyone who might pull you away from your dream, but you fail to realize that you can probably name only a few people from 500 years ago. Someday that's going to end. And the question is, what are you left with? What you need is Christ. You need Christ. You need God's truth to shine into your hearts. You need to realize that those things have blinded you. The God of this age has blinded you. And you need the pure light of the gospel. And that's why God led you here today. If you don't know, let me just put it this way, if you were to die today, whether your soul would go to heaven or hell, today is the day to make that right. God didn't lead you to hear this sermon by accident. Secondly, let me just address our church. It is so easy when we are under struggle to want to back away to not say anything at all, to just go about our regular work-a-day life and pretend that if we pretend that the struggle isn't there, that it will all just go away. But that's not what God created you for. And that's not why God called you into this church. That's not why God saved your soul. God called you to be a lighthouse of the truth to shine the gospel of Christ into the world. Let's do a good job of it, okay? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I'm so grateful for how this wonderful apostle picked up these big truths and admonished a real church in a city called Corinth that we can pick up today, and it's as though the apostle Paul is preaching to the city in Cheyenne today. And Father, I pray that you would give us the spiritual depth to be honest with ourselves about how we're doing with this commission that you have given to us, whether or not we're shining the light properly. And Lord, at the end of the day, whether Capital City Church is indeed a lighthouse of truth, Lord, it is our earnest desire to see your Holy Spirit move and work in our hearts. That truly those who have been dying spiritually would be revived 
that they would be brought back to full life the way they ought to live. And Lord, secondly, that through that revival comes a genuine awakening to truth. And that as some deny the truth, that the genuine truth, eternal truth, would shine through us again. Guide and bless us, Lord, this morning. We pray all of this in your name. Amen.